I'm Father Mitch Paquin. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition. Today, we will discuss the implications of Jesus' perceived guilt because he was counted among the transgressors when he was crucified between the two criminals. We'll also examine how many abuse victims struggle to overcome the guilt they perceive themselves and how a number of falsely accused priests and religious have been lumped in with the guilty like our Lord was. Now, we, of course, want to have you participate. You can be part of our live studio audience, uh, like people who've come here, or if you are at home and have a question or comment related to today's topic, you can be part of the show by calling us uh, during the live program, and that is at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. The number in North America is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can call 205-271-2980. Or you can also contact us through email by writing to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com. You can also follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now, as we've been doing for the last 40-some weeks, uh, we're continuing in my book, Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. This book is still available at EWTN's Religious Catalog, just go to EWTNRC.com and you can ask for item number 81098. If you are already following with us in the book, we are beginning our discussion on page 139. So, this is a section I entitled, uh, Counted Among the Transgressors. The four Gospels all agree that our Lord Jesus was crucified between two criminals. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 38, it said, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. See the same thing mentioned in Mark 15, verse 27, Luke 23, verse 33, John 19, verse 18. They all agree on this fact. And it was very much understood as the fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah. I just published a couple weeks ago another book, a commentary on Isaiah, and I call it the Gospel of the Old Testament because we see so many of these references to Jesus, prophecies made hundreds of years, in this case, 570 years before it happened. And in this case, we look at Isaiah 53, verse 12, where it says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because 
He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So that's the prophecy. Now, that, that, I tell you, this is an amazing kind of prophecy. And it's something that uh, shows that his death was not some accident. It was not something that just happened to occur and things just got out of control. That was the words of uh, a, a man from uh, Korea named Sun Myung Moon. He understood Jesus had kind of failed in his mission because he got crucified. That's not our perspective at all as Catholics. Instead, the, this was all prophesied that he would die. And by suffering for us, he bore our sins. He bore the sins of the many. Now, in fact, our Lord himself understands that he is going to fulfill that prophecy in the upper room on the uh, Holy Thursday. We see this in Luke 22, verse 37, where our Lord said to the apostles, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was reckoned with transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. He saw that this was going to be uh, something that was fulfilled. And notice, our Lord didn't say, uh, Pontius Pilate, uh, do you have a couple other criminals to crucify next to me so I can fulfill this? This wasn't a decision that Jesus tried to finagle or something. He wasn't sentenced. He just knew that this was going to happen. And it was the decision of the pagan Pontius Pilate to crucify one on his right, one on his left, and enacted by pagan Roman soldiers who would not have read the prophet Isaiah. They had no idea of what the prophet said, but this is what they, what they would do. Now, this is uh, something that we then can examine. Think about the people walking by when they see three men crucified, they would naturally figure all three of them deserved it. Now, the government wouldn't just kill somebody. They wouldn't just arrest somebody. So they would think it. And this is very important because we see that um, a lot of people uh, make similar mistakes about people involved in the Catholic Church's sex abuse scandal. For instance, sometimes people think that the victims of the abuse may have deserved what they did. They might be just as guilty as the abusers. They may have even, and, and sometimes it did happen, that they would invite the sexual experience. But at the same time, these were mostly young people, of course, and the adult in the room had the moral responsibility to say no to this. 
This is not something that we do. And so that uh, was there. But most of them were not, you know, some trying to encourage this. They were taken, you know, off base. And sometimes people say, well, why didn't they fight the abuse? Well, you know, they oftentimes were sucker punched into this. They, they didn't realize what was going on, uh, especially if they were young. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, I think, something that victims have experienced a number of times where they feel that it was their fault. And I think it's very important to see a lot of them take a, years sometimes to report the abuse because they blame themselves. Some of them say, well, what did I do? Maybe I did something. Maybe I did encourage this. Maybe I, and, you know, this is something where um, they don't realize that they may well have just been entrapped in some unwanted and unexpected exploitation. And this applies to people in a lot of other situations. Oftentimes, these kind of questions from outside, as well as questions of the victims of things like rape. A number of rape victims have felt similar things. Other people will say, well, what was she doing? What, well, how did she you know, act? Why didn't she run away? Uh, there are all those kinds of things that get said about victims of rape, and sometimes they question themselves, and they're dealing with the, you know, the, the horror of that. And then you also have uh, other situations where clergy and religious have been falsely accused. It's happened a number of times. Uh, it, it, you know, they get accused of something, and therefore, they get lumped with the guilty. And you have uh, people say, well, if there's smoke, there must be fire. Not necessarily. And I've known cases where I really knew what had happened on the inside, where sometimes a person was uh, falsely accused because they got the, some other person upset and this was a way to get back at them, to make a false accusation. Or, and there have been some cases of this, not many, but it has happened, that people who are looking for a cash payout, and you know, sometimes the diocese will just you know, do the payout and not examine the case. You know, that, I don't think that happens much anymore. Um, but, you know, sometimes that was going on. And so even in, for some of those folks, and again, I know these cases, various clergy and religious who were falsely accused were found to be innocent, and then they are still not allowed to come back to the ministry. Or in the case of one priest I knew of in Ohio, he was falsely accused. He was later exonerated, but nobody, he died, and nobody made a public apology saying this guy was exonerated. His case had been public, 
he was later completely exonerated and um, no apologies were made, no retractions in uh, the press, none of that. This, this is a good example of innocent people who are counted among the wicked. And that's uh, a situation that goes on. Now, this is where in their prayer, innocent people who are trying to deal with these accusations need to bring that to their prayer. Whether it's innocent victims who are abused or people falsely accused or, you know, men, the rest of the clergy who never were accused, never were involved, and yet the assumption had begun to treat all clergy as if they are potential abusers. That went on, uh, it's less so now, but that was certainly a situation. And this is something that I think we need to very much understand that we can pray through all this by recognizing how Jesus is hanging on the cross between two criminals. He was truly counted among the guilty, assumed to be guilty, and we can join that, our experiences with him. Those who are falsely accused, even if they are accusing themselves, and I think it would be worthwhile picturing Jesus as he's hanging there between the thieves, and for the various kinds of innocent people in these uh, abuse cases to be able to say to him, you know, uh, and first of all, prayer, imagine him there. What would that be like to be our Lord? And speak to him about their experience of rejection, the isolation they felt, the guilt feelings and the shame that they feel. These are what you bring to him. Remember, he's hanging there in public. They've taken away his clothes. They have an accusation above his head. And what would our Lord say back to the innocent victim? What would his words be? How might he address the situation? And what would an innocent victim of such a thing uh, these various types of crimes, what would they hear from our Lord about their own situation and comparing it to His? It's not the superficialities of people who merely observe and judge the victim from a distance, like the passers-by who mocked Him, but rather our Lord will go to the heart of that person and speak to the depths and speak the full truth that each person needs to hear. And I think um, another very important point is that as they, uh, those who actually are guilty can put themselves into the same scene, see themselves if they've, if they've done something wrong, if they really have been sinners, see themselves as being like one of the two thieves and identify with them. And as they do, ask them, which thief 
do they most closely identify with? If they have done what is wrong, do they say like the one thief, well, just get us out of this mess. Uh, you, you claim to be God, get us out of this mess. Or do we act like the other thief who recognizes Jesus is the Messiah and asks for mercy and deals with this sense of painful shame and embarrassment um, and examine their consciences to repent and seek his mercy in their lives. This is something, and we'll get, we'll uh, deal with that in a little bit more detail. But I think that is another aspect of this, you know, so that the innocent and the guilty can find themselves in the scene of the crucifixion. And all of us can look at it from that perspective. This would be very, very useful. Now, in the face of being counted among the sinners, our Lord <coughs> then has to respond. You know, um, we will see uh, here and in a number of other passages that our Lord spoke a number of times from the cross. His statements are traditionally known as the seven last words. And there's a ser service that we often do in the Roman rite called the tre ore, where from noon to three, we recall those words and usually follow it with a meditation and sermon on each of those seven phrases of our Lord. The first of those seven last words is seen in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Now, notice this. Our Lord doesn't do what I'm often tempted to do. I, I mean, I would like, to, when people do something bad, I want to see them punished. That's a reaction. But that's not our Lord's reaction. Instead of trying to seek revenge for those who falsely accused him and then condemned him to death and then insisted on his execution, and in the case of Pilate, you know, gave in to the crowd. He utters no threats. He doesn't curse them. People curse things all the time. I, I was filling up with gas, the machine, um, you know, didn't work. And on my side and the other side, and the guy uh, on the other side of the pump was saying that God should do some bad things to that pump uh, and use some fairly bad language. And I said, well, I don't think our Lord you know, is going to punish the pump. Uh, we just might ask the guys inside to fix it. And he apologized. He then noticed when he started cussing that uh, there was a priest there. Uh, so we just called him away from that. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't blame himself, doesn't blame anybody else. He simply prays that the Father in heaven forgive them all. And 
this is where he is living out exactly what he had taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Take a look at Matthew uh, 5, verses 44 to 45, when our Lord said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We might like it, say, you know, um, uh, just send rain and sunshine on the good people. Let the bad people suffer. But that's not the way it works. If we want to be children of our Father, we need very much to do that. And if Judas Iscariot, had heard the Sermon on the Mount, if he would have believed those words, uh, especially about loving your enemies, um, he would have been able to ask Christ for forgiveness. And Christ obviously was willing to forgive the people crucifying. He would have forgiven Judas, but he didn't. Peter did believe him. Peter believed his words. Judas did not. And we have to make a basic decision. Will I believe that when Jesus tells us to forgive our enemies, that he does the same thing, just as he did on the cross, even giving an excuse for their bad behavior? Or do I say, nope, he won't forgive? That's a basic choice. And we have to make that act of faith that he will live out his own holy words. We're going to take a break, come back and continue on with more of this. So please stay with us. Welcome back. We've been talking about our Lord's first statement, the first words he spoke on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this is our Lord not only forgiving, but he's living out being a very concrete example of what he had taught the apostles earlier. So, for instance, we see that when he taught them to pray in Luke chapter 11, verse 4, he said, And forgive us our sins, for we forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And also in Matthew 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Our Lord's intercession for the killers that were, you know, they're right there in front of him. The people that, the soldiers that crucified him, the people that clamored for him to be condemned, the people 
some of the people who lied to get him condemned. They're, they're all there. And it was Jesus interceding for his uh, killers to receive the Father's forgiveness for their sin in accusing and killing an innocent man that anchors his teaching in this very painful reality. Uh, we see in Matthew 6, verses 14 to 15, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Similarly, we see in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is uh, part of his constant teaching that shows up in Luke 17, verse 3. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. This is the task that we have. And he doesn't just tell us to do it. He lives it out in this most poignant moment. Notice that he is not asking for forgiveness. He didn't sin. He is like us in all things except sin. He never committed any sins. And he did no wrongs. But he is asking his heavenly Father to forgive those who are torturing him and killing him. This is a very important step in the redemption of the world. And we see here that uh, without having prayed this way on the cross, Jesus' instructions about forgiveness of our enemies would be a nice platitude. But he actually lives it out in this extreme situation. It comes from a man unjustly nailed to a cross, struggling to breathe, bleeding uh, uh, profusely, and the people who are killing him are mocking him and jeering at him as he's there. Remember that image so that we can see that his teaching power has an authority based on this very concrete experience and that we have to take that seriously. This was something that the first Christian martyr, St. Stephen the deacon, had learned very much. As we see in Acts chapter 7, verse 59 to 60, as they were stoning G Stephen, not threatening, they're in the process of stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Christian martyrs over the centuries have prayed for their persecutors all the way through the present. And again, Stephen was the first of 70-some million martyrs. And this is still what we are called to do. So our Lord's prayer on the cross is a continuation 
of the ministry of forgiveness that is shown to the paralytic. Remember the guy that was paralyzed and they lowered him through the roof and while Jesus was teaching? And what did our Lord say to him? Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. He was using his divine authority to forgive sins there and he continues it on the cross. And this uh, is something that he also shows in his words at the Last Supper when he institutes the Holy Eucharist because he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And it's not just some symbolic cup. We don't reduce the Eucharist just to some symbol. It's rather his precious blood, the same precious blood that was being shed on the cross through the nails and the crown of thorns. That precious blood was the basis for forgiving the people who pierced his hands and feet. So this is a very important part. And he makes this prayer for the forgiveness of sins including not only the people around him, but for all people around the world and throughout history. That's why we still say those same words at the institution of the Eucharist. His body and blood is still there for us to receive. And it will help us to understand what St. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That saving death that is the source of forgiveness. And this is something that reaches all the way to the resurrection because just a couple days after when our Lord is crucified on Friday, on the third day, Sunday, he rises. And we see in John 20, 23, that night of the resurrection, Jesus said to the apostles, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. It's the basis for confession. He gives that gift on Easter Sunday night. And um, we, I think we can take a look at this passage in a very important way. If I or you, someone who wasn't involved in the sexual abuse, say to one of the victims, well, just forgive the people and move on, the abused, uh, th this would be experienced as a superficial kind of advice. Um, this is something that I think uh, we cannot do. And that would be especially seen that their childhood has been interrupted and perhaps even destroyed. And we don't want to short circuit their experience of anger and shame and pain or hurt. But what we want victims to do is meet Jesus Christ at the cross. Talk to him who understands this and let them 
speak to Jesus in the midst of his suffering, not someone who's outside the suffering, but someone who's there, and share a deep communion of mutual understanding about this suffering that they have and their pain. And this is something that they can do. Um, they can bring that suffering with Christ, and as they do so, they may not say much. They may not say a whole lot of words, but silently they can grieve their pain with Jesus on the cross and deal with the injustice that was done to their innocence and the corrupt handling of the situations in many cases, not all, but in many, uh, from people who should have protected them. And in that communion of suffering with Christ, they can hear Jesus say his prayer, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And as they hear that word directed to themselves, they might also be able to join him not only in their suffering, but also enter into his act of forgiveness, uniting with them. And if they still need to just be in their pain, let them do that. Give them time to be with Christ, but also to let Christ bring them to a higher level of love of themselves and of God and of the people around them and to find reconciliation by being able to say with Jesus from the cross in suffering, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It may take time, let it, but you want to seek to come to where Jesus is. You are in his pain, come also to that level of forgiveness. That will also bring tremendous healing. All right, I think we need to take uh, time for some questions. Uh, next week we'll, con we'll continue on looking at the way our Lord experienced the mockery that he suffered on the cross. So we'll take a look at that next week. Now I'd like to take a look at some of your questions. I'm going to start off with an email from Bob. He said, Father Mitch, why would the Roman soldiers want to have Jesus' clothing? Since our Lord had been whipped and bloodied, the clothing would have been a mess, and the soldiers likely would not be interested in having Jewish garb, especially cut pieces of clothing. Some suggested that perhaps the clothing would have been a trophy of sorts, a macabre mention, memento of the kill. What are your thoughts on this, Bob? Um, it's one of those things, they, they, first of all, two things going on. Uh, one of his garments, they divided up. They, they saw that it was something they could tear into four pieces, and they shared it among them. Um, and with that kind of piece of cloth, you could use it for, you know, rags and things. You know, soldiers have to clean their swords and their other materials. But also, uh, the other garment that they cast lots for, that they rolled the dice for the one garment because it was woven from top to bottom and was really you know, a special garment. They recognized the special quality of that garment. 
And so they would uh, want to keep that. And it would be something that, sure, it's been bloodied and such, but it can be cleaned. You know, they had fullers there um, in Jerusalem. Uh, fullers had these shallow pools of water, and they would get borax from the Dead Sea. They would take the minerals from the Dead Sea that let that the water evaporate, gather the minerals, carry them up to Jerusalem, and use that to whiten the clothes. So they could clean it, and it would be something that said, wow, that was good quality, and they wanted to keep it. That's something that soldiers just typically did, you know, when they went to battle and seen things like that, they got to keep the spoils. I think I would look uh, at this as, well, it's not much, but we'll get a little something out of our effort in crucifying this guy. And that's what was going on there. Okay. Now we have a caller online. Roland, where are you calling from? Yes, this is Timmins, Ontario, Canada. Oh, it's, nice. Uh, Welcome. Lots of snow here, but not this year. Ah. Right now. We're close to the Arctic. Not that, that, that far, but the igloos here. Uh, wow. I'm asking about Jesus, the body of Jesus. Yes. Was it with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity, the body? Or, because inside of us, we have the Trinity. We yes. We have the Father and the, and the, the Spirit and the... Uh, and the divinity of Jesus, I don't think we have the body, eh? And yes. Inside of us, of Jesus. What, what, when you say I mean? that we have the body inside of us, what do you mean exactly? I mean the human body of Jesus Christ, it can be worshipped. Was it there with the Father and Spirit for all eternity? Yeah. Was Here's... the body just of Jesus uh, in eternity? When he, when he was conceived by the, the Virgin Mary. Yes. And what, you know, the church has taught from the very beginning, from the first century to the present, is that it is the same body that was conceived in the womb of Mary that was crucified on the cross and that rose from the dead, that same body of Christ is sacramentally present in the, uh, uh, as the Holy Eucharist. Now, it's not in the Eucharist. It is present as the Holy. The Eucharist itself is the sacrament of Christ's body and, and blood. And we receive that. Our Lord taught in John 6, we need to receive his body and blood in order to have eternal life. And so that's what he gives us. This is how he nourishes us. Um, you know, as you say, from our baptism, the Trinity is present within us. God dwells within us. And yet there is this communion with Jesus our Lord when we receive him in the Blessed Sacrament. And the way that the Council of Trent put it is that in the Eucharist, uh, or what the Eucharist is, is the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. So it's the whole person of Christ that we receive, body and blood, soul and divinity, and that we receive him and that Eucharistic presence 
remains uh, with us and strengthens us so that when we do die, we have Christ present within us in order to have us ready to go to the next stage, which, of course, is extremely important because the time after we die is a lot longer than the time we are alive. Life is short, and it goes by fairly quickly. And eternity is infinitely longer. So we need Christ to strengthen us to be able to have that eternal life. All right, but thank you for your question, Roland, and great to hear from you from up in Canada. We'll take a break and come back with more of your questions and calls, so please stay with us. Welcome back. Now, I'm going to invite you to join me tomorrow night, Wednesday, at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. And we will be speaking with Father Fred Jenga of the Congregation of the Holy Cross about the mission of Holy Cross Family Ministries, which is meant to inspire, promote, and foster the prayer life and spiritual well-being of families throughout the world, something that is very needed in this time of family crisis. So hopefully you'll turn in for that and find more ways to help encourage the prayer life of our families. Now I have another caller in. Uh, Warren, where are you calling from? Columbia, Virginia. Good to have you here. Welcome. Good to hear Thank from you. the Commonwealth. What can we do for you? Well, two things. The Holy Eucharist is the center and summit of the Catholic faith. Right. How come it is not proclaimed in our creeds and rite of baptism in our statements of belief? Okay. Number one. Number two, are you familiar with the crusade for the acknowledgement? Am I familiar with what? The crusade for the acknowledgement. Crusade for the acknowledgement of what? Of the Holy Eucharist. In the creed. The center and summit of the Catholic faith oh. is in our creeds and rite of baptism. Okay, good. No, I'm actually not familiar with that crusade. And I'm, I'll, let me explain, first of all, why it's not in the creed. The creed was written, well, well, first of all, do you know what we call the creed, Warren? Maybe he's not there. So we call it the Nicene Creed, or more precisely, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, because the creed was formulated at the councils of Nicaea, in 325, and then later at this uh, Council of Constantinople, I think the second one, uh, dealing with the Holy Spirit. Uh, 
And the reason that they, they were writing that creed is that there had been a number of crises about the divinity of Christ and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. There was one group of heretics uh, known as the Sabellians, the Sabellian heresy. They taught that Jesus is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In reaction against that false teaching, you had this other heretic, Arius, uh, who was a priest, who said, no, Jesus is not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is an angel. He is a creature, and he is not God. And in the face of those two extremes, the Nicene Creed was hammered out in the 4th and 5th centuries A.D. And they were set as such. The Eucharist was not one of the issues in crisis. There were no arguments about the Eucharist. In fact, what we see in the church is that nobody, nobody denied the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, nor did anybody deny that it is the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary in an unbloody way. Nobody denied that until the 11th century A.D. In the 1050s, Berengarius, the deacon, denied the real presence. And then a French priest, you know, explained it to him with uh, teaching about transubstantiation, and then later councils had taught that. Now, as a result, they didn't add it into the creed because we tend not to add things into the creed. We leave it as it was because the Eastern Church and the Western Church agreed on it. And we don't add that to the creed or the baptismal formula, but when we say in, at the end of the creed that we believe in the holy, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, that includes all the other doctrines and dogmas of the church that those have, have been clarified. We don't invent new doctrines. What we do is clarify the teaching of the church and the teaching from scripture and tradition uh, in the church. And so when we say we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we accept all those doctrines. So that's why it's, it's not been uh, added in. Uh, it's not seen as something necessary. Um, I think what we can do is restate, uh, and this is what the bishops are doing. Um, we did have a number of people within the church who, like Berengarius in the 11th century, were denying the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. They were focusing more on the church as community, and they were trying to form community. 
and instead of centering around Jesus. That came into church architecture, uh, the way they put the pews in the church so that we face each other to form community, all that. But what we can do is go back to the teachings of the Council of Trent. That's where the Eucharistic doctrine was made very clear. And also the Second Lateran Council. And do what the bishops have been asking us. Revitalize that doctrine of the Eucharist to help get clarity and end the confusion that has been going on for the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, that would be very important uh, for us to continue doing. Okay? All right. And then I have uh, an email from uh, Aaliyah. It uh, looks like from Tucson, Arizona. Father, dear Father Paco, thank you so much for teaching our faith every week on EWTN. I would like to know the difference between soul and spirit. Uh, Jesus said, from the cross into your hands, I commend my spirit. In Psalm 31, which is said in the night prayer, the liturgy of the hours, why not say, into your hands, I commend my soul? Um, one of the things, I, I talked about this last week on radio, in fact, um, there's not, the, the Old Testament didn't really give great clarification of the difference between the soul and the spirit. Um, it, it's, it's just not that clear. They have the Hebrew word nefesh, and the word for spirit is ruach, and uh, they, they have these words, but they don't clarify the meaning very much. Uh, actually, not at all. There's no one place. This is what soul means. This is what spirit means. They, uh, they, they're not interchangeable. And in the Old Testament, they did not understand that their soul or their spirit went to heaven. Instead, they thought of their shade or their shadow going to the afterlife, to uh, Sheol, like the Greeks thought about Hades. It's only in the New Testament that we get greater clarity because heaven was closed. They couldn't get into heaven until Christ opened the gates of heaven. And as he did so, then we understood that while our bodies remain here on earth, our souls go into heaven. Now, the distinction is uh, made by Paul. He talks about it, um, and we see it in Hebrews 4. But again, it's not well defined. And since the words uh, uh, used for soul is psyche in Greek, from which we get the word psychology, I think you could apply that to refer to those psychological, emotional uh, elements, while the spirit, um, a pneuma, uh, seems to refer more to that aspect of the human person where God meets us and intersects with St. Thomas called the supernatural existential, uh, where the Holy Spirit enters into us. Um, but it's not real clear. And so we use the terms interchangeably. All right, let's go over to Clara, uh, who writes, Dear Father Mitch, in both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, it says, and on the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. What does again mean there? What I couldn't figure out from the Latin test does not say again. 
et resurrexit tertia die secundum scripturas. Um, so the word resurrexit, if you notice in there, the surrexit means rise. Resurrexit means rise again. And it's translating the Greek Anastasios, Anastasias. Anastasios is the word for resurrection. And the ana at the beginning has two meanings in Greek. It can mean to rise up or rise again. But when the, the again part that you see is from translating that particle ana as again instead of as rise up. The same thing with resurrection, that you translate that particle, re, the re, at the beginning of surrexit, and you use that to mean again. That's why it's not resurrexit iterum. So it's not something that he did once, and then let's, let's try it again. I didn't like the first, no, 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 no. It means coming back to life, and that's why they, they mentioned that, okay? But it means to rise up, and that, that's why I would take the Greek. All right. Well, we've run out of time. So may the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And, of course, this network is brought to you by you. That's how our Lord inspired Mother Angelica to have it financed. So Mother Angelica used to ask this all the time, and we still have to ask that you would keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, because if you remember us in between your bills, we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you all, and thank you.